Welcome to the Boston Society of the New Jerusalem's Church on the Hill podcast. If you like it, consider joining us at 140 Bowden Street in Boston for more, or visit us on the web at churchonthehillboston.org. The first reading this morning is from Isaiah, chapter 43, verses 16 to 21. Thus says the Lord, who makes a way in the sea, a path in the mighty waters, who brings out chariot and horse, army and warrior. They lie down, they cannot rise, they are extinguished, quenched like a wick. Do not remember the former things or consider the things of old. I am about to do a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. The wild animals will honor me, the jackals and the ostriches. For I give water in the wilderness, rivers in the desert, to give drink to my chosen people, the people whom I formed for myself, so that they might declare my praise. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The second reading will be John 12, 1 to 11. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, the home of Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. There he gave a dinner for him. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those at the table with him. Mary took a pound of costly perfume made of pure nard, anointed Jesus' feet, and wiped them with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But, Jesus, but Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples, the one who was about to betray him said, why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and the money given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. He kept the common purse and used to steal what was put into it. Jesus said, leave her alone. She bought it so that she might keep it for the day of my burial. You always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. When the great crowd of the Jews learned what he, that he was there, they came not only because of Jesus, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests planned to put Lazarus to death as well since it was on account of him that many of the Jews were deserting and were believing in Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our next reading is Swedenborg Apocalypse Explained, section 730.2. The Lord never flows immediately into truth with man, but immediately through his good. For good is of the will, and the will is the man himself. From the will, the understanding is produced and formed. For the understanding is adjoined to the will, so that what the will loves, the understanding sees, and also brings forth into light. Consequently, if the will is not in good, 
but is an evil, then the influx of truth from the Lord into the understanding has no effect, for it is dis dissipated because it is not love. Yea, it is perverted, and the truth is falsified. This is the end of the reading. For those of you who don't know, I have extracurricular activities outside of the church. They do let me leave the building from time to time. I am a member of another organization, and that organization, as you do things, they give out titles and things like that, right? So, you know, I, I, I've gone through the various things, and you can get your grand poobah ranks and whatnot, right? So one of them is like, the grand poobah of the, you know, divine secret, right? So I'm sitting there. They are about to tell me the great secret so I can attain this new level. And they stand up there and say, love. I'm like, really? I sat through all this? I sat through all these things to be told love is the great secret. It blew my like Every Sunday at church, I say love is the important thing. I don't make people sit through all this and pay dues in order to get up to this place where they can be told the, the divine secret is love. But something hit me at one point, which is, there are a lot of secrets that are right in front of our face, right? There are a lot of secrets that are simple and are right there, and we have the option of grabbing them and living with them and doing really great things with them, but we choose to look someplace else. The open secret of love. Here we are in the book of Isaiah, and we have all of these grand things about making a pathway in the wilderness and rivers and deserts and God giving us the promise of something new. Whenever I read in the Bible about something that's going to happen really soon, I always like to remind myself of how long ago the text was written. Something new is about to happen and this was written thousands and thousands of years ago. But the funny thing is you look at scripture and what you'll find is a continual cycle of something new is about to happen over and over and over again. This is not to say that tomorrow something great is going to happen which is going to make your life better and you will have no problems. This is a message that we're growing. This is a message that we are changing. My question is, do you perceive it? Do you perceive that you are growing? Or, like Mary and I are both, what, we're still, what, 39, 23, 29? Or do you just stop? Do we just stop growing? Because we, we'd rather romanticize some notion about who we are rather than be willing to change. I think most people here, when you're asked the question, am I willing to be open-minded and embrace change and growth, most everybody's going to raise their hands. In fact, if you went up to most people and asked them, 
Are you open-minded? Do you consider ideas? Most people, guess what they're going to say? They're going to raise their hand and say, of course I do. I'm open-minded. I'm not a party person. I might be registered this way, but, but I always make my own decision. The fact of the matter that I statistically fall in line with everything that the party says is irrelevant to whether or not I make my own decisions. There's some point at which I realized, wow, I really am a good statistic. Like, I fall right in line with where the marketing world wants me. And I start asking myself questions, who am I? If people can predict my behavior by advertising to me, who am I? This book of Isaiah, old, is talking about rebuilding the second temple. Something new is going to happen. The people of Israel are finally going to take over and, and be the dominant power of the world that they knew at that time. Something new. This concept of transformation lying just beyond our reach is not about a moment in time. It's about a way of living. The prophets are not about a moment in time, but about a way of living too. Mary, in our reading today, is as she was anointing Jesus' feet, and Jesus, by the way, knew that was an anointing for death. Nobody else figured that out. Jesus saw it as part of a death ritual. No one else knew that was coming. But everyone had a palpable sense that something big was going to happen soon. What does it mean to you to think that something new is going to happen. Something new that's going to transform the world. When you start talking about this budding sense of hope and expectation that people have about the transformation of the world, more often than not, it is what that person wants. Right? Oh, the world's changing, and it's changing to what I want it to be. What if it's not? What if the world is not changing to what it is you want to be? And I'm not saying the world's changing for bad. I'm, I'm not trying to be a naysayer. I'm saying, what if you are not the center of creation? We don't oftentimes think of it like that. Sometimes our perspective places us as the most important person in the world. The downside of me commuting. You know, I commute an awful lot. I don't know if other people have these thoughts when they drive, right? Because I don't talk to many people about this. I just talk about it randomly in front of a large group of people staring at me. But I sit there, and I've never rolled down the window to ask. That'd be an interesting thing, like starting knocking on people's windows in traffic and asking, what are you thinking about? <laughs> because I start asking myself, what are they thinking about? Are they thinking about what the other people in the other cars are thinking about? Am I just another car on this road, or is there something special about me? But what if they're sitting there saying, am I just another car on this road, and is there something special about me? Right, everybody. What's going on when we look inside? All there are a lot of people on this earth. 
What does it take to claim that your way is the right way? There are a lot of people on this earth. It takes a whole lot of hubris to claim that you are right. So we have truths and facts. How many people have heard a lot of things about truths and facts? We know the truth. We have the facts. We know that our way of thinking is right. We live in a time right now, I'm guessing, where most, pe most people ha have tuned into whatever their, their favorite news provider is. And if you've noticed, almost all the news providers have stopped having reporters and now have commentators. Anyone know the difference between a commentator and, re and a reporter? Reporters are bound by ethics. Commentators are not. Commentators are bound by nothing. They can say whatever they want because they're making comments. It's another way of saying, I have no ethical duty to actually provide facts to you. We can attack one news network versus another news network, but they all use them. You see, because what we have found, in the height of all of this conflict, people are actually in hoity-toity universities that nobody wants to pay attention to because the books are really boring to read. People are starting to research this. They're starting to research the polarization in society. And they're starting to ask, why is this happening and why does it intensify? And what they are finding is, truths and facts do not actually matter in an argument. This is why Facebook is the genesis of so much peace and tranquility. <laughs> what they are finding is that you take an individual truth and depending on the person's experience who is reading about that truth or observing that truth, that concept of truth is informed by their experience. The truth I look at is not the same truth that you look at. Now I'm back on that road again, commuting. What are the truths that all those people and all those different cars are thinking about, and what gives me the right to claim that my truth is superior to theirs? What gives each one of us the right to think that our truths are superior to anyone's? You see, people want to be right, I'm guessing. I know I, I want to be right, right? I want to get an A. I want someone to say, look, I respect him. He's always right. I want that. We do. It's not a bad thing. It's part of, we want to be good. But so often we try and be good through a way that actually doesn't breed goodness. We like this concept of righteousness and of being right all the time and saying, how much justice hurts people? Because we just have to be right. The term justice is supposed to take into, term, into account context. It's supposed to say, what is the appropriate equal measure? What is fair? What is just? But when we implement justice systems, they don't ask that question. They ask the question of, did you violate the law, and what is the statutory rule that we're going to respond with? Right? We do it all the time. Research shows us something that is very interesting. Let's say you all were researchers. You took two people who disagreed with each other, right? And you put them in a room and you created the conditions for an argument. What would be the outcome? 
as the two argued, do you think the facts? And do you think the truth that each one... I've got to move that someday. Do you think that the truths that each person brings are going to sway the person they're talking to? They don't. They find the longer people argue, the less they are willing to listen to what the other person's saying. The longer that people argue, the more likely it is that they will never come to an agreement. If you are discussing something with someone you care about for more than five minutes, stop. Say, now's not the time, let's come back to this later, because the longer you argue, the less likely it is. Now, that does not mean discuss. That does not mean engage in weighing options. I'm talking about arguing. There's a difference. We all know what arguing is versus discussing. The longer we argue, the more our neural activity is active while the other person is talking. So what they have found hooking people up to electrodes is that in the midst of an argument, people are oftentimes not listening. They're thinking about how to argue back before the person has actually made their point. That's how come we're so quick at responding in an argument. No one's listening. So guess what researchers have found the answer is? Compassion. Caring, actively caring about understanding what the person you're talking to is talking about. Actually trying to understand how they see the facts. Understanding why they're scared. Understanding why they're presenting what they are presenting is truth is truth. Actively seeking a way to care about the other person. You know another name for that? Love! That's the secret. The secret's love. But yet we get into these arguments over and over again. Complaints in scripture. Complaints constantly coming to the government about what Jesus is doing. And the answer's love. But that answer's undermining power and control. That answers undermining the fact that every single person on the road needs to pull over to the shoulder when I am driving on it. That's the problem about being in the fire department too long. You've had experiences where you've seen people. They can do it. When I commute, everyone should get onto the shoulder to make it so I can get home because my life is more important than theirs. What are they thinking about when they drive? A lot of them talk on the phone. I should give them a call and ask them, hey, what are you thinking about? <laughs> I don't know. Couldn't say. <laughs> Our Swedenborg reading today, I don't know, anybody find it dense? It was pretty dense reading. Okay. Swedenborg in this situation uses a lot of big words to say something very, very simple. He is telling us that God doesn't connect to us through truth. God connects to us through love. From the will, that means our desires, the understanding is produced and formed. That means what we love shapes what we see. 
If all I want to love is myself and getting home, I look around that road and I do not care about the other people around me. What we love determines what we see. In other words, Swedenborg is saying, without all the modern research, each one of us can have different truths based on what our love is. And if each one of us has a different love, that one truth, that one thing that we're looking at is going to be different for each one of us. How do you know that you're right? How do you, what source do you, I was reading this meme the other day on Facebook about, um, about the part in the Constitution that says slaves are only counted at three-fifths a person. And I was reading all of these different things. And it was interesting because one side was saying, oh, well, that's about, that was put in there because of racism. The other side argued, no. Actually, it was put in there to try and stop racism. You see, if you counted slaves at their full personage for voting, that means all of the white masters get to vote for them because they didn't get to vote, but they would get counted in the vote. Does that make sense? So you could have the white male landowner with 200 slaves claiming that population and getting that many delegates to Congress, but it's only the slave owner who's getting to dictate what is good for the slave. Whereby reducing that number, it actually removes power from the slave owner. Does that make sense? Here we go, a simple fact. Both sides in this argument were looking at this paragraph in different ways, and they were pulling up different arguments. One person saying that number, when the Constitution was crafted, was about trying to end slavery, and the other side saying, no, it was about dehumanizing the slave. Same fact. Two different understandings. Nobody, by the way, was arguing that that should come back into practice. They, everyone was in favor of the amendment eliminating that practice. But it's interesting the way that that simple fact could have two drastically different points of view that this was not what I would call a polite conversation on Facebook. This was heated. Do you know what I didn't see in those postings? Love or compassion. You see, something new is something that breaks a cycle of violence. Something that's new means that you are opening yourself to be transformed by God. You can only do that if you are willing to let someone in. You can only do that if you are willing to say, I am not the center of the universe. You can only grow if you are willing to water the seed. We're at springtime. We like flowers. Flowers are starting to bloom. They do not bloom unless they become weak and vulnerable. Unless the seed is willing to soften, the flower never blooms. How do you come up with what is truth? Well, what would it be if we could start asking the question, not are you right or wrong, but are you compassionate? in what it is that you're saying to another person. And again, I'm never a fan of saying compassion means you just give somebody what they want. 
That's not the point of compassion. It's not about an unhealthy enabling. I am talking about legitimately caring about trying to understand what the person who you are talking to is thinking. So you have a possibility of, I mean, it's a little selfish. I want to know what someone is thinking because hopefully I have a chance of growing. Wouldn't that be a nice way to live? I'm not saying that I do it all the time. I'm a person like everyone else, but every day is a day where we are exposed to something new. Fight for it. Day by day we journey. And we have the ability to grow. What does it mean for you to be right? What does it mean for you to not feel small in a world of billions of people? Not to feel insignificant, but to be given the gift of a billion people who can help you grow if you have compassion for them. Get ready for something new. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Boston Society of the New Jerusalem's Church on the Hill podcast. If you liked what you hear, consider joining us at 140 Bowdoin Street, Boston, for more. Or visit us on the web at churchonthehillboston.org.